You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, Revolution Church. How you guys doing? That's what I'm talking about. Tim, it's nice to see you, man. I haven't seen you in a long time. Feels like anyway. Anyway, uh, tonight we are continuing through our series called Bible Stories, Finding Christ in the Old Testament, or rather just Christ in the Old Testament. Um, and what, we've been, what we're doing, we just started it last week, we're looking at the most famous stories in the Old Testament and seeing how they all foreshadow and point to Jesus. Uh, because Jesus says himself and the apostles say in the New Testament that all scripture points to Jesus, it's all about him, the whole Bible points to him. So everything in the Old Testament is just types and shadows of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ. Um, so last week we took a look at the creation account in Genesis 1. Obviously, if we're starting the series, it's good to start in the beginning. Um, and, and we saw how God created and that he, pl- and, uh, he has plans for his creation and that we can take heart in this life knowing that we have been created for a purpose um, and that God will ultimately restore his creation so we need not despair whenever we see this corrupt world around us. Um, so when we left off um, in, in Genesis chapter 1, everything was perfect, right? Everything was perfect. There was no sin. God dwelled with his people in Eden. It was awesome. But this evening, we're going to see how and when everything went wrong. We're going to look at the fall of mankind, right? Or sometimes Christians call it the fall. Um, and, and what's implied there in calling it the fall of mankind is it's a fall from grace, is what's implied, that man sins and rebels. So we're going to be looking this evening at the first instance of man's rebellion against God and what it led to, um, or what led to it and the result of it. And in considering these things, um, my prayer is that we would begin to hate sin. To not just say, well, that's, that's a bad thing to do, sin is, you know, taboo or whatever, but that we would actually begin to, with a holy hatred, hate sin more and more and be on guard against temptation. Um, be on guard against temptation from Satan. Be on guard against ourselves, right? Because one of my favorite things to say is uh, because of our sinful nature, right? Like, I don't need help sinning, right? But Satan will, Satan will definitely, like, give the assist sometimes, right? Like, for certain, but, like, I don't need help with that because I'm a sinner myself. I will sin. Um, but my prayer is that we would be in, in, on guard against temptation and that, and that we would learn how to see through the lies that we hear about sin and God. Um, Because our culture is full of just falsehoods about who God is and about what sin is. And that in doing this, that we would realize our guilt. That we we stand guilty before a holy God because we are, in fact, sinners. And that life is completely hopeless. And that uh, our eternal uh, destiny is utter hopelessness apart from faith in Jesus Christ. But then ultimately, by the end, uh, I hope that we are glorying in the fact that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And that we do nothing for our salvation. We contribute nothing but that Jesus Christ himself will be our righteousness when we stand before God, if our faith is in him. Um, So before I read, let's let's pray real quick. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. We're in darkness without your word. It's grace upon grace that you you would give us the Bible that tells us about your character and who you are. And again, like I said a minute ago, what to be on guard against. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Soften the hearts of the people here, myself included. 
that your word would penetrate through to us and we would see sin for what it is and we would see ourselves for what we are and then see Jesus for the beauty that he truly is. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. So we're going to be reading out of Genesis, obviously. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Um, this first bit, it's kind, of, it's kind of scattered. I'm reading verses 7 through 9, 15 through 17, and then 25. And then later, um, here in a little while, we're going to read all of chapter 3. All right, so let's check this out. Let's see what Moses writes in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Bear that in mind. This is incredibly important. You are sure to die if you eat of its fruit. And then verse 25. God goes on, he goes on to make Eve for Adam. He says, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Right, so God creates man from dust, right? We just read that in verse 7. God creates man from dust and then places Adam uh, in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch it. Uh, like Think of like a guard, right? He's, he's in this place where God's going to dwell. Eden is to be God's sanctuary. Adam, you're here. You're a guard. Tend it. Um, nurture it. Um, and, and in this passage, we read that Man was made good, right? We know the Bible teaches us that we're all born sinners, right? But Adam, on the other hand, Adam and Eve were both made good, which means sinless, right? They were innocent. They had no sin nature like we're born with, right? What I mean by sin nature is a propensity um, to be hostile towards God and desire to do evil. Adam and Eve did not have that, Uh, but... They were not yet, uh, according to the Reformed tradition, how we uh, word things, they were not yet sealed in righteousness, um, like that Christians will be someday. And what I mean is sealed in righteousness is, is will not be able to sin. Right, this is honestly, this is a beautiful truth, and I look forward to this day, where like I will not have the ability to disobey God anymore because he will seal me in glory. It's, it's this doctrine we believe called glorification, right? that will be made perfect. Um, sinless, without the ability to sin. Um, we get that from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You know, I know he who began the good work in you will see it through to its completion on the day of the Lord Jesus. Um, and that good work that Paul is referring to in Philippians 1 is being conformed to Christ's image. He talks about it in Romans chapter 8, that we'll become more and more like Jesus and God will eventually complete it, that we will be sealed in this perfection where we can't sin. Right. So I just wanted to make that distinction. So Adam and Eve have the ability to sin because they're not sealed in righteousness yet. But they were currently, at this point in time, good and sinless. God did not make them sinners. Okay, so they're good and sinless, but they have the ability to sin. And then God gives Adam a command. Don't eat from that tree, right? Everything else is totally kosher, right? Like everything else is good to go, but that one tree, if you eat from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die, right? And and, and I, I would take that a little bit, more personally than just like, oh, you'll die like an ethereal concept. God is looking at Adam and saying, I will kill you if you eat from this. 
I will personally punish you for doing this. You will die. We're going to get into more of what that means on a deeper level. But in that instant that, that God goes to Adam and condescends to speak to man and says, everything's cool, here's this one command. Don't eat. Abstain from this tree. In that instant, God and man enter this thing that we call the covenant of works. All right? And that might be new, new terminology to you, but I think we're going to have it up here. Maybe, perhaps, maybe not. Um, the covenant of works, and basically it's this. Obey God and live, right, in perfection. Disobey God and die. Right? That, that, that the covenant of works doesn't get much more simple with theology. Obey and live. Disobey equals death. All right? And, and the covenant of works, uh, the word covenant means an agreement between two or more parties. Think of it like a legal contract. Right, uh, but what I thought was really interesting is in the Greek, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They use there's two words for covenant, and the one that they use is one that that uh, that talks about one of the parties in the covenant is much more significant than the other ones. Like they're the one dictating the terms, right? The other word is a a word that means two equals enter the covenant, and the word here is the one where the one with more power is the one dictating the terms. I thought that was very interesting. So there's this covenant where God is dictating the terms to Adam. There is no negotiation on Adam's behalf. God says, hey, here's how it's going to be. Obey me and live. Disobey me and die. The covenant of works. The reason why I'm spending time on that is it's really important that you guys bear this covenant of works in mind. I also want to note this. There's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that tree. Right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like Whenever God made it, it was good. Right? There's nothing inherently wrong with that tree. Uh, but to eat from it became a moral evil. It became morally wrong the moment God commanded to abstain from it. Solely because God commanded don't eat from it. Right? God is the one who gets to dictate what is right and what is wrong. Right? But why did God give the command? That's something that I scratched my head about growing up in Sunday school. I was like, can you cover that one, teach? And they just kind of just blew by that. Right? Like, why would God give the command don't eat from this tree? I'm convinced that it's this, um, and feel free to talk to me about it after the sermon if you disagree. Um, I believe God is going to Adam and saying, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will, furthermore, will you see me as I am, the one who's in control of this whole thing right now? Will you see me as the one who is in charge? Will you see me as I am? Will you see you as you are, Adam, as the creation who is obligated to obey the one who made you? you know, will you see that I am worthy to be obeyed because of who I am? Not even because of the command itself necessarily, but just because of who I am. Will you trust me? Right? This is essentially what God is doing with all of his commands to us. All of his commands to us. To go, go tell people the gospel. To abstain from you know, sexual intercourse before you're married. To, to avoid drunkenness. To speak graciously. To be generous. All of these commands. I, I truly believe God is saying, do you trust me in my way? Do you trust me generosity is better than greed? No matter what you may think about it. Do you trust me forgiveness is better than holding in bitterness? Right? Those kinds of things. Do you trust me? And this is crucial for us to understand. Sin is unbelief. It's not having faith, right? Faith is trust. Just laying that out there if you're new here. Faith is trust. So sin is refusing to trust that God and his way is better than anything else that we could possibly conceive. That's one of the ways that I would define sin. Sin is not trusting God. 
And I heard a preacher say this once. I think this, this stands the reason. Genesis 1, God says, I created, I create everything. The, the, the end of Revelation, the final chapter, I restore everything. And in between, he's saying, will you trust me? Will you put your faith in me? So sin, then, is trusting in ourselves or something else to bring us contentment or to bring us joy. And something, that we, something else we saw in this passage is... is God gives us really good reasons to trust him. And you may, you may have like kind of glazed over him. I just sit and really think on it. You know, why should Adam trust God in this? Because um, yeah, I like to play devil's advocate against myself. Um, but God reveals his character in this passage, which is a great reason. Like just who God is. He shows us who, we, who he is. Um, and, and this is why we should trust him. The first thing that I, I noticed is God is good. Like just his raw goodness is displayed in this passage. He made everything. Right? We, we learned that last week. I'm not going to labor that point. He made everything and then gave Adam everything as a gift. Adam didn't put in on this. right? Like He didn't do anything to deserve this. He just gives Adam the world, and then he gives them the liberty to enjoy everything in it, in perfection, except for one thing. right? But all these other gifts, all but one, given to Adam, and Adam didn't deserve it. And then furthermore, God looks and sees, you know, it's not good for, we skip this part, it's not good for man to be alone. And then he gives Adam a wife, right? And one of the funniest things, I didn't get to read it. Adam looks at, I heard a preacher say this once, if you've heard it before, bear with me. It says, Adam looks at his wife, and they're both, you know, naked and unashamed of the garden. So God creates Eve, and he looks over at his naked wife, and he says, you know, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. That's actually a song. So Adam sees his naked wife and sings a song because he's so overjoyed. And I always thought that was really funny. But, you know, that's neither here nor there, I suppose. Um, but, you know, so God gives Adam everything, places him in the Garden of Eden, which is perfection, gives him a wife. What I'm getting at is God clearly loves man. Clearly loves man. Everything he's done has been a grace to man that grace did not deserve, including, or that, that he did not deserve, including creating him. Surely, God's goodness shines through in this passage. The second uh, attribute of God we, we see in this passage is that God is the authority over all things. Like I said, that's, that certain Greek word that's used for the covenant, the kind of covenant that he entered into with Adam, God dictated that to him. God says, hey, Adam, I'm giving you the command. The one who gives the command is the one who's in charge. God's authority is put there. The, that He is the capital A authority. God created man from the dust. He's the creation. We're the, uh, he, he's the creator. That was heresy. He's the creator. We're the creation. And so God is God. He's the authority. He alone is God. He alone reigns. He is the one who gets to dictate how we're supposed to live. And then thirdly, I, I see this characteristic of God. This is a big one. We don't talk about this a whole lot. To our shame. God is holy. He's holy. God declared that the Penalty for disobeying him is death. And he says, if you eat, I will kill you. You will die. God will not take disobedience lightly. Nor will he look the other way at sin or wink at it ever. He is holy. He is just. He will punish if the covenant of works is broken. Because if he is going to be good, like we just saw a minute ago, if he's going to be good and he's going to be holy, then he must be a just, righteous judge. If the covenant is broken, punishment must happen. So these three things, uh, I, I believe, are really good for us to keep in mind as we fight against sin, right? And I think that they're in that order, too. Right? Whenever we have the opportunity to obey or disobey God, 
we should consider, well, He's so good to me. Look at all the things that He's given me, including my salvation in Christ, if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, look at the common grace God has given you, that the sun shined on you, that you have clothes, that you've eaten, that you're breathing right now. Call me crazy. Right? Like, you don't deserve that. He's, he's good. The fact that, and if that's not good enough, the fact that He is the one who's in charge, the fact that He is the authority, and we have no right to disobey Him as the creation And then if that's not enough for you, His holiness should strike enough fear into you that you wouldn't disobey. That God is not a God to be trifled with. You know, why wouldn't I obey Him if He's good, the authority, and He's holy? It just makes sense to obey Him, which shows us that sin just doesn't make sense. It's illogical. But apparently Adam and Eve kept the covenant for a while, right? Verse 25 says they were naked and unashamed, which means they could stand with no guilt in innocence before a holy God. They didn't need a covering before Him. They were naked and unashamed. They had no sin, and therefore they were accepted by God. Let's read this next chapter and see what happens. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? I want to take a second and... The cool of the day, right, you've heard that if you know like older translations, like God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Um, we talked about this last week. Moses is not writing this in a vacuum, right? He is writing this whole creation account over and against the other gods of the false religions surrounding him. And we can look historically and see whenever a writer in, in the ancient Near East talks about a god coming in the cool of the day, that's not like, oh, like, you know, the Lord's just taking a stroll, and like everything's hunky-dory, and it's like about 65 degrees out in the Garden of Eden. Right? That's not what we're talking about. It's a storm. Think like a typhoon, like a hurricane. God, he's not asking Adam, where are you? He's not asking Adam questions because he lacks knowledge. God knows that they have rebelled against him and sinned, and he descends in a furious storm on the garden. Where are you, Adam? You know what you've done. Verse 10, he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Adam's fear makes sense if God is coming down in furious anger. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Pay attention to this next verse. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Consider God's grace to them there. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That's heavy. That's heavy. Right? That's why I wanted to read this whole thing. Again, we think Adam and Eve of like this cute little like picture of like a woman with like two leaves over her chest. And you know what I mean? Like Adam walking around with like, you know, like a loincloth kind of a thing on. And it's, it's cute, right? Because Sunday school has produced some of the dumbest art in the world. Um, <laughs> it was fun when you were little though, wasn't it? Um, but I wanted to read this whole passage because we just read the fall of mankind. This is one of the most significant events in history. This is not just a story. This is history. This actually happened. We just read the account where man violated the covenant of works between God and mankind and then went under the curse of God all because man disobeyed the holy, good, authoritative, righteous God who made him. But what led there? I'm glad you asked. It all started with temptation to sin. Now, temptation is not sin. Temptation, it's a little bit more nuanced than this, but simple definition. It's like the setting of two choices before you, right? Will you obey or will you disobey, right? Like someone pulls out in front of you in New Boston traffic because it's horrible right now. And like you can like, you know, like give them the finger and like mutter some like sinful stuff under your breath and be really mean. Or you can be patient and gracious and kind, right? And say, you know, this is God's road, and I belong to God, and he's sovereign over my time, and, you know, it'll be all right. I'll be 30 seconds later than I would have been, right? In that, in that moment, we have temptation. We can obey or we can disobey, right? So this whole thing started with temptation to sin. Will you obey or will you disobey? Now, I want to make a note. Eve's temptation was a little bit different from the ones that we face because Eve was t- tempted by the devil himself, right? And she also had no sinful nature. Again, so she had to be tempted from without, Right outside of herself, um, we on the other hand uh, are at a double disadvantage. Right, not only do we have like Satan and demons who can tempt us to sin, but we also have our own sinful nature that we have to contend against. Right, Romans chapter seven, we have to fight against the flesh. Um, but what I want us to do is, in considering how Satan tempted Eve to sin, I want us to see how Satan tempts us today. Right, and also how we tempt ourselves. Again, we don't need the devil to make us sin. We will make ourselves sin, but he will give the assist from time to time. 
So what's Satan's method, right? I see three things, how Satan tempts us to sin. And we can, again, we can also tempt ourselves in these ways. The first one is this, question the command. Question the command of God. Two, deny that there is danger in breaking the command. Three, suggest advantages to breaking the command. Right now, this method worked against sinless, no sin nature having Eve. Surely, it will continue to work against sinful man. Right? Like, uh, if, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Or in the words of the rapper Shylin, if the song's a hit, you ain't got to remix it. Right? Like, that was just too clever. I would have never thought about that. Um, I hate remixes on songs, right? If the song sucked, leave it alone. Um, right? But if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So for the first thing, what did Satan do? He tried to show... He tried, to, he tried to get Eve to question the command. He questioned the command itself. What he was doing is, you know, did God really say? He's trying to show that the law, the command of God, the law of God is unreasonable. Or it's uncertain, right? Like, again, did God really say? Is there some wiggle room here? What he's doing is he's questioning the certainty of the command, right? Like, surely this is open for debate, <laughs> Right? Surely, like, this command that God gave you is open for discussion. Right? Or, like, God wouldn't tell you no. Right? Like, God wouldn't tell you not to do something that you really want to do. God is just suggesting what you might want to consider doing. Right? Did God really say? Or, God is being arbitrary. Like, come on, man. Like, would he really care about this? Does he really care about all these minute? Does he really care who you're sleeping with? Right? Like, does he, does he really care, like, if you have a couple of beers too many? Like, does he really care about that kind of stuff? He's just being arbitrary. He has no good reason to forbid something. And he has no right to forbid it either. Right? I think those are the kinds of things that, that Satan's trying to implant into Eve. Right? Surely God doesn't have a right to do this. He's arbitrary. Um, we do this. We do this. We see it in our culture a lot, but we do this to ourselves. Right? Do we not question the commands of God on a regular basis? I do. I know I'm not the only sinner in the room, right? We question the commands of God, and I think one of the number one ways that we personally do this is we claim that we don't understand what the Bible says, right? Like, I don't, like, what does he mean, like, love your neighbor, right? Which is what the Pharisees said, <laughs> said to Jesus, I might add, right? Like, what does he mean be generous? Like, can you define, or like, what is sex really whenever Paul says, like, keep away from sexual immorality, Right? We, we claim that we don't understand what the Bible means. But really, that's because we don't want to be accountable to obey what God says. I'm convinced of that. The commands are clear. Now, I will say this. Theology can be hard, right? Like trying to get your head around, like, the Trinity, right? We talked about that in the men's group a little bit. Like, theology can be hard. The finer points of what the Bible teaches. And there are some hard passages. But I will argue this. The commands of God are clear. Right? Think of the Ten Commandments. Don't do this. <laughs> right? Thou shalt not. Right? Just keep away. Like, there's, like a child can understand these things. They're very simple sentences. The commands of God are always clear to us. We just want to try to muddy them up so that we aren't obligated to obey them because we can claim ignorance. Like we think ignorance of the law is an excuse. You try using that on a judge. I'm sorry, like officer, I didn't know that the speed limit was 35. That doesn't matter, right? Like, I tried that one one time. Yeah, sorry, bro. Like, no, doesn't matter. But the, 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 the second thing that we saw Satan do. So after he teaches man or tries to convince man to doubt the command, then what he tries to get us to do is deny the penalty for breaking the command. What does he say? It is the most, like, bold, in-your-face thing that, like, the devil maybe ever says in the Bible, like, aside from the temptation of Jesus. 
you won't die. Like, that is a direct contradiction of what God said. God said, you will die if you eat from this. No, you won't. Right? Like, that's what the devil has the guts to say. You won't die. He tries to get us to deny the penalty. Really, what he's trying to convince Eve in that moment, hear me on this. He's trying to convince Eve that God is not holy. He's trying to make her believe that God will look the other way on her disobedience. God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't kill you. Tell me if this one sounds familiar. God is too loving to do that. God is too loving to send someone to hell. God is too loving to punish you for your sin. He isn't holy. If you believe that, that one, that's calling God a liar. He calls himself holy more than almost anything else that he calls himself in the whole Bible. If you deny the holiness of God, you don't have God anymore. You've just fashioned an idol for yourself. A false God that can't save and that doesn't exist. Deny the command, doubt the command, deny the penalty. Right? The, the hope of, I'm, I'm quoting Matthew Henry, a uh, dude from the 1700s, very good, by his commentary. It's on the whole Bible, it's fantastic. He says this, the hope of impunity is huge support to sin. Impunity meaning that the punishment won't come on me. Right? The hope of impunity is really what can light a fire to make someone sin or get someone to sin. Because what the hope for uh, God not holding us accountable for our actions or, or putting the punishment on us, it, it really, believing that renders our actions to be without consequence in our own mind. Apart from what reality actually is, is that God is holy. It makes us believe that our actions won't have anything coming behind them. I'd like to note something, too. These two things that we just talked about, um, doubting the command and denying the penalty, are two of the biggest lies that we see around us, both in the church and outside of the church, concerning God. That he is unclear in his commands, that his commands are open to discussion and open to debate. Right? That God is, is like, surely there's some wiggle room in this whole sexual immorality thing. Right? Even though the word's porneo, which means... Everything, I guess that's the best way I can say it. Every single thing you can think of, because God knew there's going to be some freak that tries to get around, like, if I made a specific list. Um, yeah. But it's his belief that God's commands are unclear, and that he's just suggesting. And this lie that our culture tells us that, you know, God wouldn't send someone to hell, that God wouldn't punish a sinner, that God is not holy. I think those are two of the biggest lies that we see inside and outside of the church. And when I say church, I mean the visible church. I mean people who claim to be Christians, but maybe aren't. But then Satan does this. So after doing those two things, getting the preliminary work out of the way, right, he suggests the advantages to disobedience. And I am convinced he would not have succeeded without this. Right? I don't think he would have succeeded if he would not have suggested advantages to disobeying God. What does he say to Eve? You will be like God. Right? You will have knowledge. You will have power. I think he's implying those things. You will be like God in those ways. What he's saying is you'll be better off if you disobey. Which is implying that things could be better than they were in Eden. Satan's telling them, like, things can be better than they are. You can actually go up a level, even though you're in the midst of perfection. You don't even know what death is, or, like, or what sin is, or what disease is. But things could be better, Adam and Eve. What Satan convinced them to be was discontented. All right, discontented with their lives. He tried to, to get them to believe this lie that being in an intimate, close relationship with God was not fully satisfying. 
that God was not enough. That their life was missing something and that sin could fill that whatever they were feeling, that life could be better. That's what sin promises always, just laying that before you. Right? That's what the world promises. That's what Satan promises. That's what sin always promises. That greed, sex, power, um, you know, money, vengeance, respect, our way will make us whole. That doing what we want to do is going to make us complete and fulfill our lives. That's the lie sin always tells. To go further, Satan says, you will be like God. And I'm, I'm shortening down what he says. He says, God knows that you will become like him, and that's why he doesn't want you to eat. He knows you'll be like him. And I'll throw this out there. God knew what they would become if they ate, for certain. He knew that they would become sinners, and he doesn't want that for them. But Satan tries to twist it around. He says, he knows what you'll become. He knows you'll become like him, knowing good from evil. I think what Satan is insinuating there is that God gave the command as a means from keeping man from joy. That God is telling you not to do whatever it is that he's commanded because he wants to cramp your style and keep you from happiness. He knows that life will be better for you if you eat, Adam and Eve. This is an attack on God's goodness. Like again, that's why I want to talk about the goodness of God in this passage first. God gave man the earth. He gave him a wife. He gave him beauty to enjoy, an intimate relationship in the immediate presence of God. He bestowed his image upon man. And yet Satan would have man to believe that God is not good and doesn't want him to have joy. God desires our joy. And he knows that it's only found in glorifying him and knowing him and showing his fame to the world and honoring him. He knows that anything outside of that is not what we were designed for, so he tells us to keep from those things. So I'd like to to draw this to light. If you view God's commands as God trying to burden you or keep you from happiness, then you don't believe that God is good. I wrestle with this. For certain. Sometimes I'll read stuff and I'll say, God, why do you care about this? Isn't, this seems kind of arbitrary. What's it matter? And in that moment, I'm questioning God's goodness, and you are too. And we have no reason to believe that. We have no reason to think that. Whenever we look at all the graces that God gives us, especially if you're a Christian, and you can look to Jesus Christ. But Adam and Eve, nonetheless, as foolish as it was and as wicked as it was, they believed the lie. They succumbed to temptation, and they ate the fruit, and they broke the covenant that God had made with them. And in doing this, they didn't just disobey God. They betrayed God. God put them in the garden, and he says, guard it. Right? Like, they should have kicked the serpent out. Eve should have actually went to her husband and said, hey, yo, there's a snake over here. I need you to handle this. Right? But, like, they betrayed God. They didn't just disobey him. What they decided to do in the instance that they disobeyed God was they decided to worship the creation, the serpent, themselves, instead of the creator, which is what Paul accuses all mankind of doing in Romans chapter 1. That we would worship the creation instead of the creator, namely ourselves. This wasn't just an act of obedience. In the words of R.C. Sproul, this was an act of cosmic treason against the king of the universe. This is the most wicked thing imaginable that we would disobey a holy good God who's given us everything we have. And that's what sin really is. It's treason. It's betraying the creator who made you. It's worshiping something other than God. 
So Adam and Eve sinned, and the whole world fell into disarray. And the Bible says they realized the difference between good and evil, that their eyes were open. Satan was good on his, on his word, right? Like your eyes will be open, you'll know the difference between good and evil. Satan promised that to him, But the reason why they came to the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't like this ethereal knowledge. It was they had done evil. That's how they came to the knowledge of it. Is they experientially came to the knowledge between good or the difference between good and evil. Because what evil is is sin, and, and as a lot of the Puritans would define sin, sin is a transgression of or lack of conformity to the law of God. It's either a sin of commission or a sin of omission. It's outright rejecting his law and doing your own thing or just not wanting to be generous and not wanting to do the positive commands of God. They had done evil. Said, and they felt guilt and shame. Said they realized that they were naked in that moment and they became ashamed of it. And I think that's, that's to spiritualize that a little bit. They realized that they now need a covering before God, that they can't just stand one-on-one with him. They need something to shield themselves from him because he's angry now. They know what they did. They remembered. He said, we will die the day that we do this. Or, or rather, we, we will be sure to die. And then God descends on the garden in wrath. And they get to see a small sliver of God's wrath in his questioning them. And they try to hide. And God confronts them. And what do they do? They try to shift the blame. I think this is hilarious. Adam, why'd you do it? Well, the woman you gave me, right? He actually tries to throw it back on God and say, this is somehow your fault. How often do we do that? God, I wouldn't have done this if you, if you wouldn't have put me in this situation. You know, like that God is going to like just reach his hand down and take you out of your girlfriend's bedroom. <laughs> if you wouldn't have let me get in the position, I wouldn't have done it. Right? He tries to throw it back on, on Eve and throw it back on God. And then Eve tries to kick it over to the serpent. Notice this. God doesn't care at that moment, does he? He says, you violated the covenant. I don't care how you're trying to blame shift in this moment. You each disobeyed me. So God pronounces curse on them. Again, he is holy. Man must die. In verses 22 and 24 in in chapter 3, it says they were driven east of Eden. They were driven out of the garden, out of God's presence, which represents spiritual death. That should they die in this state of being out of the presence of God, that hell is waiting them when they die. Whenever God says the day you die, he didn't just mean physical death, although we see that in the curse of Adam. You you were made from dust to dust, you will return. That's actually why we physically have to die is because we're all sinners. But he's talking deeper than that. This is a spiritual death. Hell is waiting Adam and Eve should they stay in this condition. They are under the wrath of God because they broke the covenant of works. Obey and live, disobey and die. Now, some of us may think, you know, that's tough, right, for Adam and Eve, right? That really, that's awful for them until you realize that the Bible tells us this is your problem. What they did is your problem. It's my problem. Romans 5, I'm going to read some select, some select verses and parts of verses from that. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So we somehow sinned in Adam. We'll talk about that. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. 
For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. This is our problem. Because Adam didn't just represent himself in being the good, sinless man that God created and declared good. Adam represented all of mankind in this covenant of works. Right? It's this concept in theology that we call federal headship. He represented us, kind of like how the president, whether you like it or not, represents our nation whenever he goes to national, like international meetings. He represents you. What he says, as far as the world's concerned, we have all said. That's federal headship. That's what Adam was for us. And that means that we are guilty too. We are born sinners because as the Bible teaches, we are born in Adam. We are descendants of Adam and Eve, two sinners. Right? Two sinners make a sinner, right? Just like, you know, two cats make a cat. Right? Two sinners make a sinner. We are in Adam. He is our federal head. He represented us. So his sin, God, the word is imputes to us. He puts it on us. He credits Adam's guilt to you. It's kind of like if you're watching a football game, right? And you see someone go off sides, even though number 73 went off sides, which is my football number in Pee Wee football, I might add. If, uh, yeah, we lived the dream back in sixth grade. Um, even though number 73 jumped off sides, the whole team gets penalized, does it not? Because in that moment of transgressing the rules, that person represented the whole team. The whole team gets penalized. Now, some, I'm sure, are thinking, that is not fair, that God would impute Adam's guilt to me. And I didn't consent to Adam being my representative. And I'll just throw this out to you. You can take that up with God, the one who made you, if you can speak before him when you stand before him. You can take that up with him. You can, you can talk to God about what's fair, the one who is the epitome and definition of justice and righteousness. Take that up with him. But even without Adam as our head, right? Because I know some of you are, are, do not like that concept. But even without Adam as our head, you have your own sin. I have my own sin. We have all personally broken the covenant of works. Right? We've all, you, you've, let's do the Ten Commandments pop quiz. Right? And, and the Sermon on the Mount pop quiz, as I like to call it. Have you ever lusted after somebody? Have you ever taken anything that didn't belong to you? Have you ever wanted to take something that didn't belong to you? Have you ever been discontented with your life? Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Have you ever worshipped God with everything that you have? The answer is yes to all the first ones and no to the last one. You and I have all individually, without Adam's assistance needed, broken this covenant as well. So in all ways, God justly and righteously puts the same curse of spiritual death on us. And there is no excuse for us. There is no excuse. Paul says in Romans that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world rendered guilty before God when we stand before him in judgment. There will be no excuse that we can make. We have violated the covenant. Adam violated it for us. We are objectively guilty in all ways before a holy God. We need a Savior. You need a Savior. We don't need a new covenant of works, right? Because like, I was thinking about that. We don't need a redo because we would fail at that one. We don't need a do-over. What we need is grace. We need unmerited favor from the God that we have sinned against. We need mercy. We need to receive what we, or rather not receive what we deserve. 
We need grace and mercy from God. And God gives grace. He gives a, a covenant of grace. He gives a covenant of grace in contrast to the covenant of works that we have broken. Where God will do all by himself to save us from himself, for himself. He, does, he will not need our assistance whatsoever. This will be a one-sided covenant that he makes with us. And he gives it to us in Genesis chapter 3. It's funny. As God is cursing Satan, he gives us the gospel. Matthew Henry put it this way. It's beautiful. He said, no sooner had the wound in mankind been opened up than God gave the medicine immediately. Genesis 3.15, God says, And I will cause hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Singular, offspring. He, this offspring of Eve, will strike your head. Some translations say crush your head, because if you strike a snake on the head, it dies. And you will strike his heel. The offspring of Eve will kill you, but you will wound him. The offspring of Eve will save Galatians 4.4 4 says this, But when the right time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, and subject to the law. God sent Him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that He could adopt us as His very own children. Jesus Christ came to earth and subjected Himself to the covenant of works. Obey God perfectly and live. Disobey God and die. And then Jesus Christ fulfilled the covenant of works. This is the best news I've ever heard in my life. God became man so that he could fulfill the covenant of works on on behalf of man. And in his death, Jesus bore our penalty for breaking the covenant. He suffered the curse of God in our place. The Bible says, Cursed is the man who's hung on the tree. And Jesus was hanged on a tree in our place to suffer the wrath and curse of God that was rightly due to us. So now through faith in Jesus... Just as Adam's guilt was imputed to us because he is our head, now God says by faith in Jesus Christ, we get a new federal head. And we get the righteousness of Christ put on us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We get this righteousness imputed to us. So just as Adam and Eve realized that they were naked and needed covered before God, so do we. But now God clothes us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he does this by faith, by trusting in God, just like he wanted Adam to do in the beginning. This is the covenant that if you're a Christian, this is the covenant that you are under, the covenant of grace. All is done by God in Christ to save you, you wicked sinner who doesn't deserve it. But if you're an unbeliever in here, or you're a person who thinks you're a Christian, but you don't follow Jesus, I would tell you the Bible says that you are not a Christian because you do not follow Christ. I want to warn unbelievers and nominal Christians alike, you are still under that covenant of works. We are born, like like Paul says in Galatians 4 that we read, that Jesus came to buy freedom for the ones who were slaves to the law. He's talking about slaves to the covenant of works that were born into it. We don't have a choice in the matter. You're under that covenant if you're not a Christian, if your faith is not in Christ. I would remind you, you've already broken that covenant. Being a really good person for the rest of your life will not change a thing. 
it's broken. You cannot repair it. You cannot save yourself. The only, inter, the only way to enter into this new covenant, that's why it's called the new covenant, I might add. The only way to enter into this new covenant is by faith in Jesus Christ. So I would just beg you to repent and believe the gospel that Jesus has saved you in his life and death and resurrection. Trust him because there is no third option. You will suffer the penalty for breaking the covenant or Jesus suffered it for you. But to sum this whole thing up, let this account of the fall of man cause us to think rightly about sin, to really see it for what it is. And learn to be on guard against sin and against Satan and against temptation and against yourself. Be on guard. And let this account show us how to fight back against temptation to sin by remembering God's goodness, His authority, and His holiness. But when you fail, because like John says in John chapter 1, anyone who says they have no sin is a liar and the truth is not in them. When you fail... Let the message of the gospel remind you that you are no longer a slave to the old covenant of works, but you in Christ are in the covenant of grace, that Jesus' righteousness is yours by faith, that the serpent has been crushed, and Christ has won your salvation by his cross. Love Christ and hate sin. Trust the God who made and saved you because his ways give life and everything else ends in emptiness and ultimately spiritual death. In Adam, all die, but in Christ, all will live. Let's pray.